Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. This episode of Sound and Vision is sponsored by Kensington Panel and Stretcher. Kensington Panel and Stretcher offers high-quality custom surfaces for painting and mixed-media artwork. All products are handmade and designed to meet the highest standards of strength and stability. To learn more or place an order, visit them online at kensingtonpanels.com. Sound and Vision is also brought to you in part by Charter Coffee House, located on Graham Avenue in East Williamsburg, Brooklyn, one block from the Graham L stop. Charter combines dedication and skill refined over a decade in some of the most detail-oriented dining experiences in the world and applies them to your daily coffee experience. Using a variety of coffee beans from four renowned roasters and ingredients from carefully selected farms and distributors across the world, Charter has created an eclectic and expansive food and drink menu ranging from quick bites to casual dining, all prepared with passion and attention to detail. Charter's determination to make an impact on their community doesn't stop at the customer. A portion of all profits goes to charities focused on revitalizing communities and youth development across the world. Find out more at www.chartercoffee.com or follow them on Instagram at charter underscore BK. And stay tuned for an exclusive collaborative coffee blend from Charter and Middle State Coffee Roasters coming soon. Sean Landers is an artist based out of New York City. Born in 1962 in Palmer, Massachusetts, Sean received his BFA from the Philadelphia College of Art in 1984 and his MFA from the Yale University in 1986. Sean is represented by Friedrich Petzl Gallery in New York, China Art Objects in Los Angeles, Green Grassy in London, Takaishi Gallery in Tokyo, and Gallery Rudolf Johnson in Brussels. Sean's work is represented in numerous museum and public collections, including the Whitney Museum of American Art, the Brooklyn Museum of Art, the LA County Museum of Art, Walker Art Center in Minneapolis, the Denver Art Museum, Seattle Art Museum, Tate Modern in London, and more. I met up with Sean at his West Village studio, and we talked about his days growing up in an artistic family, the value of humor, music, painting, and much more. Here's our conversation. I was, uh, I'm from Palmer, Massachusetts, which is um, a western Massachusetts town uh, south of, you know, Amherst. And uh, was it a rural area? It's, it was rural. I grew up and it's more depressed now, but it was a lovely small town in the 60s and 70s. And um, it's sort of it's sad. I was just there last week and it's tra- changed so much. But, um, yeah, it was a it was a great town to grow up in. Small town, had paper roots, played on sports teams. Yeah, you know, it was uh, really idyllic. Yeah, what did your parents do? Were they creative? Yeah, my mother is still painting today. Always has a painting going in her kitchen. Um, she had a studio. She has a. She still teaches oil painting to oh, really? a bunch of, uh, you know, elderly people who come over and paint in her basement. She has a studio set up down there for teaching, and her mother was an oil painting teacher. And, um, did she learn from her? Or did she go to art school? My mother learned from her mother. Yeah. yeah but my, my grandmother learned from uh, a Springfield, Massachusetts painter called J.J. LaValle. He learned to paint in Paris in the late 1800s. So he had that sort of, you know, by then, I think 
impressionistic style was sort of rote. Yeah. So he had all those moves, and he taught my grandmother those moves. She was really good. I, my uh, house is filled with her paintings, and they're they're really competent paintings. And the older I get, and the more I paint, and the more experience I have as a painter, I just appreciate what she was able to do more and more. Her she lived next to the practice field for my uh, little league football team. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, I wasn't that enthusiastic as a younger person to play football. So sometimes I'd skip practice and go to her house and studio. And she had to deal with me. She wouldn't tell my parents as long as every time I came over, I made an oil painting. Oh, really? So I would make oil paintings, you know, with my football pads on, my cleats, (laughs) my shoulder pads. That's that's (laughs) funny. That's amazing, though, to have a really accomplished family legacy of painting. That's not, I don't think that's common. It's small town (laughs) painting yeah it's not new york city not boston right my i think my grandmother has one painting in springfield art museum or two or something and a lot of the local libraries have her paintings hanging yeah um and they're you know they're wonderful paintings but um you know that's it but you know i think still to this day you know my my family's thought of as the art family in Palmer. and uh if anybody wants to learn oil painting they they go see my mom and they send their kid to them to my mom yeah and, uh, you know, all my brothers and sisters, we're all sort of forced to paint as kids. And uh, that's why when I went to art school, I wanted to major in sculpture. Something different. You don't want to away do, from it. Yeah, yeah, you don't <laughs> want to do what everyone else is doing. But yeah. the real gift of that is probably that you, from an early age, saw people doing it as for, a, yeah. for a living. Or, you know, it's not like, it doesn't have to be a hobby. This is something you can actually devote a lot of time to. Yes, yes. And I think even more the... Uh, what really resonates with me is just the smell and the, how much like the warm hug from grandma, uh, you know, nut oil. Yeah, is. yeah. The comfort of that oil paint smell. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, um, uh, so yeah, it says, you know, to, it doesn't smell much like paint in here right now because I'm like in a down, a down moment. But um, you normally come in here and it's that, that sort of familiar family Yeah, you smell. get that waft of... So you won't be moving to acrylics anytime soon. Nope. <laughs> no. So so you went to school. You played sports, but yep. this was something you were doing. Well, yeah, I was never. You know, I I was not one of these uh, art students who was ostracized and on the outside. I was plenty popular enough. I I didn't feel, but I I also didn't feel in the middle of everything either. And I think at the time I thought there was something wrong with me, but then I realized as I kind of matured that I didn't really want to be in the middle of it because it was stupid in the center of social life in high school. Yeah. So um, no offense to anybody there. But, <laughs> you know, yeah. the, the most popular people in the cafeteria are people who peak really early in life. Yeah. And they do for, you know, really dumb reasons. Right. So, um, you know, the nerds and, you know, the others, the others are sort of hanging out in the periphery and, you know, hoping it'll be get better in college. Yeah. And it, it usually does. <laughs> it, it, I think it always does. Right. But anyway, so, but I, I you know, I had a fine time there and, um, but was really, you know, I could tell something was missing and um, the way that this sort of developed for me was uh, around puberty, I just started writing copious amounts of poetry. Mm-hmm. I would write so much that my dresser drawers were filled with torn scraps of paper, all with poems on them. I would write on my bed sheets. My American flag bed sheets, there, nice. red and white stripes, and uh, you know everything. Was, was this from school? Like you were just getting into poetry from reading an English class, no. or you were just doing it on emoting your own? teenage angst? Oh yeah, yeah, chemicals. Yeah, chemicals. <laughs> <laughs> just brewing inside. I couldn't contain it. it yeah, had to come out, and uh, you know, it's 
you know, the, the town is very colonial looking, you know, because it, it, it is an old colonial yeah. American town. And my bedroom was colonial themed. So, you know, my lamps were guys with tricorn hats and muskets mm-hmm. and, you know, it had uh, all, the whole theme. So anyway, I'll just lay that when I talk about my colonial paintings later. Right. We can, we can back circle that. back to that. <laughs> I just want to lay that down as a marker in that uh, the poetry started in that sort of context. But it was all, you know, really hard, crushing hard on girls and getting yeah. their heart broke. And, but also, you know, the beginnings of sort of the philosophical questions that reach teenagers. And uh, it was... Would, I'd be mortified if anybody read any of these today. Right. Of course. Yes. In fact, I took them all to, my, on my mother's suggesting, took them all to the school's best English teacher. Oh, and really? Her name was Mary McManus, and I went over to her house on a, on a Saturday, a day off for a 15-year-old is is you know what I have to see a teacher on right. a Saturday. So I brought her about 15 poems, and in, she read them all. She sat me down at her dining room table, read them all, and she just like she was just disgusted she's like oh these are horrible horrible she kept reading them one after another and finally she looked at me and she goes you're not gonna kill yourself are you really she was <laughs> yeah because they were all so angsty yeah yeah and i was like and i was like no i'm just <laughs> writing i don't want to kill myself at all right it was just you know and i was so embarrassed so my dreams of becoming a writer ended right there oh yeah and i um that had to hit hard i it, mean you're bearing your the window to your soul there yes as, you know, which is a very difficult thing for a young kid to do yes. and to get crushed. <laughs> Utterly crushed. Yeah. And at the end, um, she, she, well, she's, she sent me home with a Robert Frost book, and, um, which I love to this day. Right. I love Robert Frost. And he was a local. He lived in Amherst. And Emily Dickinson yeah. lived in Amherst. And they were like my childhood heroes. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I um, you know, they're local people who are world renowned for their poetry. And I wanted to be a poet. And, um, but yeah, she crushed that dream. And, uh, I think it was a good thing in the end, but you know, who knows? Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, I guess you just buried that all inside for the decade or so. <laughs> but w- the way that my art eventually sort of really took on a life of its own and, you know, in the, in the art world here in New York was, um, through what I was writing yeah. on in various forms. So yeah. Burying your soul in a way, right? Yes. Yes. But we can you get, you know, how that was. It wasn't always a one to one thing. I, right. mean, I, I learned to protect myself by being somewhat fictive whenever I could and adding the fig leaf in certain ways. And uh, how I learned because, you know, to protect myself became a really important part of this because I did feel so humiliated by that experience. Yeah. With that teacher. Who, you know, uh, in fairness to her, she she realized she overdid it and many times spoke to my mother and my older brother and saying, like, I'm afraid I was too hard on Sean. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and also she's probably not accustomed to having that kind of like window opened up to her. Right. I guess not. I mean, did she, I think she had kids. I'm not sure, though. And yeah, they like, probably hid that and buried it like yeah. all other kids do. Yeah. I mean, she's like I grew up very Irish Catholic and she was she was uh, in our church and she was, you know, the, the lector lecturer. She would read from scripture, mm-hmm. you know, before the priest would stand up to read gospel, I guess. I forget. I'm so far out of it at this point. And I was an altar boy, too. So we're laying down all the early early days tracks. I was an altar boy, paper boy, you know, all that stuff. Um, so is that a good 
carpet bombing of my youth. Well, we there's more. one missing part of that equation because you have art, you have prose, yeah. you have sports, and then I'm sure music factored in. Yeah. Well, Was that the grand release or some <laughs> sort of connection that you can make to... You know, like, I, what was the music situation? Well, all my friends were, you know, this was the time of a Journey and Steve Miller Band, you oh, know, nice. in high school. And that's what everybody was listening to. Yeah. And I just thought, like, how could, how did I get born into a time where music <laughs> is such shit? And so my recourse at that time was to go early. So Jimi Hendrix, The yeah. Doors, The Who, Led Zeppelin. And I'd be listening to those things in my bedroom. And those are some of the first albums that I bought. But little did I know, in the late 70s, the coolest thing was happening. If I had just got my ass to Boston, right. you know, I could have seen Jonathan Richmond or something like yeah. that. Or if I, you know, I, I, we would come to down to New York because my uncle used to live down here. But it was never uh, to go to CBGBs or right, anything right. like that. I wasn't anywhere near downtown. And no internet, so you couldn't bump into it. No. No one was posting about, you know, the Ramones. No, but, you know, I, I had heard, you know, little snippets of, you know, the jam and stuff like that. Yeah. And I was like, there, I was getting a sense that something was brewing. And, of course, you know, once I got to, and then, you know, I guess the talking heads sort of broke through around then and Blondie did. Yeah. And it gave me a sense of, like, oh, there's something cooking out there. And right. then as soon as I got to uh, art school, it just that's when it really kind of opened up, you know, um, because there were all the clubs down there. So I would go and, uh, and immediately got a crazy haircut and went to hardcore clubs and, you know, mosh pits. And the it's whole like thing. a release. It, it was intimidating. And cause you know, there was, there was all, I was such a small town kid went the first, uh, you know, day in the dorm, we were, you know, the, advisors got us all together and said hey let's let's have some uh, you know uh, recreational time in Fairmont Park so we went up there and that's on the Schuylkill this is Philadelphia so we we got up to the river and we're playing frisbee and my friend you know his the kid on my dorm had this new frisbee and he breaks it out and I immediately threw it and it bent and went right into the Schuylkill (laughs) and he's like oh man you fucking dick He lost my frisbee in the Schuylkill. And I was like, what's the fucking problem? I just dove in, swam out, and got it. <laughs> Everybody was freaked they out. Freaked out. Yeah. They were like, what the hell? He's crazy. He's a hick. Because <laughs> where I'm from, you swim in rivers. Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> right. They, they, took, they, they were so worried about everything that had gotten into all of my orifices. They took me to uh, one of the very powerful fountains on Benjamin Franklin Parkway <laughs> and basically made Decontaminated. Me, <laughs> yeah. They were trying to get me to squat over the main thrust to, like, to get it all out from under there. Were you confused at why they were so, you know... Well, Godsmacked that you would like, you know. I I just thought like I just saved you your frisbee. What's the then? Was like, yeah, man, I don't want you to die. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you survived, and you probably taught them a lesson. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like country kids can swim. Yeah, yeah. You're not afraid of a current. So the the music was you weren't quite there yet. Like it didn't tap in yet. I mean, Philadelphia that I got it, and I got it from fellow students and it was slow burn through freshman year but it wasn't until maybe the end of freshman year that I was going to clubs yeah you know when you're you know I was 17 when I went and um, turned 18 in that first semester so I was I was really a rube yeah and um, must have been overwhelming I yeah I was a little intimidated because I'd never been in a lived in a city yeah I wasn't used to the noise and the commotion, you know, and unfriendly people. The riffraff. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. 
you know. Yeah, not saying hi to your neighbors. Yeah, yeah. none of that. Just, you know, hey, get used to it. Did and did you, did you, was it, I would imagine with your family history that going to art school, you know, would have been okay. The, and they were, they just hoped that I would major in illustration. Oh, of course. Or graphic design. They want you to earn a living. Yeah, they were worried about that. Yeah. And so was I. But as soon as I got there, I realized I, I am not a commercial artist. Yeah. So I gave up that hope. And I had a very inspiring uh, freshman year sculpture teacher called Tom Butter, mm-hmm. who's still, he lives locally here downtown. Yeah. And, um, you know, he was a huge inspiration to me. Um, I don't know why, because I think he was emerging as a young artist in New York City at the time, and just just the he was a symbol of what appealed to me in the art world of you know being someone who makes shows, makes what they want to make in their studio. Probably had energy. He had a lot of energy. Infectious. Yeah, I don't think he's that much older than me. Maybe five to eight years older than me. So it was like a within reach sort of thing. Relatability is important. Yeah, because I think when you're first starting out in school and you have some professors who are quite a bit older than you, you can have a hard time connecting, you know? Yeah, I've noticed, you know, now that I'm 55, I've noticed that people in their 30s, like, they don't listen to me as much because they think, like, <laughs> well, the old fucker, just shut up. Yeah, it's, it's... You've had your time to talk on Earth. It's right, time for right. you just do something else. Yeah, and what are you talking about yeah, anyway? I guess I don't know anything. <laughs> I guess that happens to everyone as they age, right? I'm um, sure I had a plenty, I did that to plenty of older too. people when yeah. I was a kid. And I, I'm sure I tried to be polite and yeah. look at them and try to listen to what they're saying, but I was, I'm sure I was drifting off. It was like the teacher in Peanuts <laughs> wah, 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 the whole time. <laughs> forget it with my kids. God, I try to tell them stuff and they just, it's like eye rolling. Like, yeah, yeah. It's like, it doesn't connect. Nope. It'll, but, later on, they'll figure it out. But, you know, there's, I think if for studio, you know, I, I think as I matured, like in graduate school, you know, the older teachers, I started to really get into their advice. So it's a phase that just, I think, burns through pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and then certainly art history teachers, they were great, great to, you know, have some of the, I had some good ones of those. And Right. You have to find yourself a bit to, to become open to things. You know, it's hard to open up and take things in when you're still trying to figure out what the hell you're doing, you know? Yeah. The way one defines herself when they're young is, is you know, compiling a list of what you know you're against yeah so um and also you know learning from all your classmates horrific failures in their studios things like that are really defining so yeah valuable yeah (laughs) you hear that critique going on next door and you're like all right i'm not gonna do that or you know when you're painting there's everyone gets that point like me if i just throw this pot of paint on it it'll make it better Mm-hmm. It never does. Right. It never does. I think it worked for one guy in history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but always tried. Yeah. yeah everybody yeah. tries it. <laughs> <laughs> so so when you finished undergrad, did you, were you thinking, oh, I have to go to graduate school? What was the, the I wasn't, kind of well, the, the mood at that point? The way that went down is, um, you know, I, I, I went through the whole sculpture program there at Philadelphia College of Art and was about to graduate. And my mother called me up and said, you know, you should go to graduate school. And I said, why? I just going to move to Brooklyn and get a carpentry job and try to make it as an artist. And yeah. she said, I think you should go to graduate school. And I said, it's just a waste of time and money. She said, no, you know, um, I want you to try and I want you to, I'm gonna, I'll pay for having the slides made and the application thing. So she said, I want you to apply to at least two or three. And she said, one of them I want you to apply to is Yale. And, uh, and I was like, Yale? What? I didn't even know Yale had an art school. <laughs> right. I was like, what are you talking about? She said, yeah, Yale's got a really good art school. 
and she, the reason she knew this is I guess I had a cousin mm-hmm. who went there and uh, for uh, got her MFA in photography a few years before. So she had heard about it from her maybe at a funeral or wedding or something. And she yeah. said, I want you to do what your cousin did. And we're like, okay. That's pretty amazing. I mean, you know, I feel like a lot of artists, their family or the people around them don't really know anything about the process and are just like, where, where are you applying to? Or what are you going to do? You know, it's more of a negative kind of like, well, you're not going to, you should switch to something else. Yeah. But well, that's a real directive of like, you need to get a master's and yeah. this is the place you should go to. Yeah. She said, you need a master's so that you can teach in college. Yeah. You know, if, uh, you know, it'll, it'll be a wonderful thing for you right. to help supplement from time to time. And, uh, you know, um, so you figured you'd just do it, right? Well, yeah, I, I figured I'd do it just to, you know, there, I always had a very strong competitive streak. So then I, when I started thinking of it, like, yeah, I want to get into Yale and I'll try Columbia as well. And then I had a third, a backup, uh, Maryland Art Institute. Yeah, yeah. So I applied to the three of them and I got into Yale and Columbia mm-hmm. and I got rejected by Maryland Art Institute. Nice one. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how those things work out. Yeah. yeah. It didn't work. So you figured New Haven. I did. I went to both uh, schools and interviews, and yeah, I think it reson. I think the uh, program at in uh, Yale resonated more for me than the one at Columbia. Mm-hmm. Columbia was not what it is today. Right. Where I, I've taught at both of these schools at this point, and uh, Columbia is a wonderful program. But back in 1984, it was really sort of disconnected from the. I just thought, felt like it was too sleepy a thing and I needed more of an environment. And I saw that in the Rudolph building. I saw that at Hammond Hall yeah. at, uh, in New Haven. So I opted for it. It was also nice for me to be back sort of on the north side of New York City. Right. Uh, after, you know, it felt sort of uh, distant from New England. Yeah. And, uh, it, was, it was really nice to be back in uh, New England. Yeah. And You're not far from the harbor. No, <laughs> you can just drive. You could actually hear that accent every now and then. Right. Yeah. Did you go? Did you go to the beach and stuff when you? Were, I, th- I think I we did over the summers. We would go over up to, uh, what was that place? Hammonasset. Hammonasset. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I did. Um, it's nice. Fact, it's it's like you, there's a getaway there. There is. Yes. And uh, I would do that sometimes. It, there is a lot of uh, shore places to eat and stuff. Yeah. And um, you can fill up a car at graduate school with a bunch of people and go out to one of those places. Was the, uh, this is a weird question, was the pizza not quite what it was? Oh, no, it was on. It was good, yes. Who knew um, that they had such a great pizza scene in New Haven? They really did. And And they invented the hamburger. Louis. Louis Lunch. Amazing hamburger. But my favorite was Yankee Doodle. Oh, the Yankee Doodle. That was still there when I was there. I think it closed... It's closed. Fairly recently, right? It's a disaster. Did you like that burger with the Piccadilly sauce on it? I didn't. Well, I was a vegetarian oh. by grad school, but I did their breakfast sandwich, which was like <laughs> eggs, and it was really good. That place was great. It was just a great place. Yeah. There was like that place, and Rudy's were like the places we went Rudy's, to. Yeah, of course. And, and Mamoons. And Mamoons, yeah. And luckily, there's a Mamoons here in my neighborhood, and I still go yeah. there once a week. It's good stuff. Mm-hmm. Never and been. for a vegetarian, I lived... Like, my window opened up to its exhaust fan side, so <laughs> I was eating there a lot. Yeah, falafel, fryer grease right yeah. in your window. Oh, it's good stuff. I, you should go to Mamoons when you leave here. Today. I think I might yep. hit it on the way out. Yeah. <laughs> so, but the program going there, you, you got accepted. Yep. You And what was your, I mean, well, before getting into the work at Hammond Hall, what was your work like in undergraduate? Were you... Yeah, it was... Was it uh, big? Was it sculptures? Well, 
I, the way I first heard of Anish Kapoor was in my Yale interview, they said that all my undergraduate work really looked like it was Anish Kapoor. And you but had no idea who that I, was. I had no idea who it was, but as soon as I then looked him up, mm-hmm. which was, which meant I had to go to a library and find old art magazines and look yeah. up Anish Kapoor because there was no internet. And um, I, I loved it. I thought he was fantastic. So mine were sort of, uh, you know, unique, inventive, sort of tight shapes like that. Yeah. And they were done with different materials. Um, you know, those that was sort of like senior year. But I was always in, uh, always evolving the whole time. Were they large scale? Very large sometimes, yeah. yeah. You could get in them and rock them. Or you could, um, you know, uh, some were large hanging things. Um, they were... You know, if like I read um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, so then I wanted to make, you know, a giant sculpture of a, of a of a monster. You know, uh, that uh, you know, so her monster. Mm-hmm. So um, it, there was a lot of things like that. I w- it would be lit- a lot of it literature based. Something I would read it would give me an idea for something to, to sort of make a sculpture out of. So, you know, like 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez mm-hmm. gave me an idea of this uh, winged, winged thing. Um, uh, anyway, so I, I, did, uh, I did that, and that's what I applied to Yale th- uh, with and got in with. I love that. They were like, oh, have you heard of this guy? Anish like, Kapoor? Yeah. <laughs> and like, you look it up afterwards, and you're like, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, they weren't facsimiles, but yeah, you yeah. Know, I, I could understand why they said, uh, you, you remind us of Anish Kapoor. Yeah, but and I feel like in those days, authorship was a little more weighted in your work, you know, where now it seems that you can quote, you know, with the proliferation of everything. Yeah. It's, I mean, uh, I don't know that younger artists are really seeking to be original. Like, I'm going to do something no one ever did before because, you know what, it's all pretty much been done. And yeah. now it's kind of like, okay, I'll just navigate the waters of all this older stuff. Like musicians nowadays, you yeah, know, yeah. put a little bit of like, you know, new wave and a little bit of, you know. I don't know, punk and then a little metal or whatever. You're just like I agree completely. blending things and together. But back then you really wanted to be, you know, my stuff's different. Yeah. Yeah. You wanted to be. But I think there's always going to be, you know, untouched land. You right. Know, yeah. Virgin territory by virtue of the fact that every human ever born is unique from all others. Right. And if they really connect with their a true expression of themselves, they're going to define a new area. Right. Having said that, though, um, certainly, you know, I will, when I'm, when I want to reference somebody else, it's blatantly obvious when, if I'm doing Hogarth or Picasso or, you know, um, Magritte or Picabia or somebody like that, I'm definitely following their footsteps on purpose. And, um, but sometimes, you know, you do it subconsciously, you don't know you're doing it, you know, and, um, but, you know, that's all part of what it is, you know, if you... If you, I think, if you are referring to somebody or, or two or three different artists at the same time, then by the fact that you're combining those in different proportions, it's it's its own unique thing then too. So definitely, it is interesting to think. It's just there's always going to be new stuff because every even if you're quoting something, you're quoting it at a different time, so it's inherently different. But it's just so um, you know, like when when minimalists started. You know, when Judd started doing his thing, that just didn't exist. Like, people weren't right. even doing formal abstraction. Yeah. And it must have been weird to, like, charter new territory like that. Like, Robert Ryman was like, you know what? Fuck, I'm just going to use white. And there was no one who did that before. Well, yeah. Malevich. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. it was new territory. 
It was a sort of a, you know, the background to a lot of our education was was sort of rebuilding art once it got sort of simplified down by people like Ryman yeah. and Malevich. It's sort of like what they did to painting was reduce it so much that then you that I think it was incumbent upon I guess the first generation to do it was maybe the seventies. The photorealist rushed in, yeah, Chuck Close and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff, and then and then in the eighties the the uh, neo expressionist sort of. And then the Neo Geo, and then postmodern, yeah, you know, like it was sort of building this thing back up, and it took a lot of different forms. But in the process, it sort of, I think, it spread down a, a foundation where just anything, anything goes, yeah. and any combination of anything throughout history is valid. In fact, you'd see, and when I was teaching, I'd see art students who would have five different hit art historical strains of the same yeah. painting do it yeah. on purpose. Right. Well, I guess nowadays too, we have new media as a new frontier as well. Well, you can aid your your you can aid this process by using Photoshop. Yeah. You know, and uh, throw it all together, and and sort of know what it's going to look like before execution begins. Yeah. Which well, is I, and which I've, is I've seen some VR stuff too, where people are doing, you know, like virtual paintings where you put on VR glasses and you're moving through environments, <laughs> and it's like it's it's, it's different. Well, it reminds me of Jessica Stockholder in Hammond Hall. You mm-hmm. know, uh, she was a, a year ahead of me when I was in that program, and that, I think that's what she was trying to do then. It was yeah. sort of, uh, sort of explode a painting into physical space. Right. At least uh, as I understood it then, maybe I had it wrong, but I think that's, I think what, it that's was. what she was doing. Yeah. It was pretty amazing. Yeah, it was cool. Before you see stuff like that, you know, it's like, whoa, what is, you know, you're painting on that, on that, and it's creating this. Yeah. You know, it is actually like, it's like an exploded drawing. Yeah. Which is really what virtual reality is. But you the, know? one of our teachers there then was Judy Pfaff. Oh, and yeah. she was doing that too. Yeah. And Ursula von Riedingsvard was the other one. And it's nice to see that she's uh, getting a lot more attention these days. Yeah. I hope Judy gets it too. They're both really great artists and they were two excellent teachers of mine at Yale. It made a big impact on a lot of people. Tons. Yeah. At Yale and Columbia and Hunter. I think they, you know. A lot of different programs. Right. So when you made the change, when you went to Hammond Hall in New Haven, what was, uh, was there a shock of the new, of all the new students and the different work? Were you exposed to more conceptually or how did your work change or more for how did your ideas, um, you know, the, change? The, the biggest change I think for me was I had a gigantic studio. And I had one of those big ones at the end, you know, with a, and they have 40 foot ceilings. It's not even like a studio. It's like a, I don't know. It's like like a, a basketball court. A building. Yeah. <laughs> Half a basketball court is yeah. what my studio was. So I had that and I had, um, just getting in there um, probably gave me more confidence because it's always a little like, you know, am I somebody or am I nobody? Mm-hmm. I feel a lot like nobody. So getting in there made me think maybe I, maybe it gave me enough confidence to sort of, um, mean it more and yeah. be less timid. So I, I tried making, uh, I started making, um, well, I, I picked up where I left off at Philadelphia. I was starting to make shapes and then the shapes become more like animals. And then, um, and then I, uh, went to look at some, uh, you know, uh, Goya matador and bowl and horse and bowl and then i i thought i'd like to make a sculpture out of this you know drawing by goya so i did a skeleton inside of a of a drawing of a skeleton inside the horse and a skeleton inside the bowl and then i used those as plans for like two by fours and i screwed them together and then i did lattice work on the outside and i ended up sculpting these larger than life size you know Mm -hmm. a bull hitting a horse on the side 
and then you know I did it with some fighting dogs, and then I it sort of um, went on from there into this sort of uh, giant fighting animal series. It was sort of the first thing that really took shape for me there. It sounds and pretty good. They were cool. Yeah, I, we have photos of them. We're <coughs> scanning them. I'll, I'll put them on my website eventually. <coughs> Excuse me. But the other thing that was happening at the same time was I was writing copiously on my walls and making paintings. So there's paintings, writings, and cartoons on the walls. So, and I started to learn that um, skill then. And I was too sort of thick to realize that when people would come into my studios, studio for crits, that they, you know, give a cursory nod to the gigantic sculpture I had just completed. Yeah. But their backs were soon turned to it, and they're absorbed. By oh, really? the content of the walls because it was again I was learning that play between being confessional and diaristic mm-hmm. and in also you know authoring as well in, in in moving it so I was learning where my place was as a writing presence in the work yeah and also the play between writing and cartoon and and the play between writing and painting mm-hmm. because um all of those things were there yeah and um, anyway, what well, seems like the uh, the sculpture would have come off as like a big external, like you know, image, like this big external event or something. But the stuff on the wall was more internal. You know, yes. it's more emotional in a way, or like you know, referring to, you know, um, I don't know yourself, and that's probably engaging to the teachers. You know, yeah, I think it, it it's the hook, uh, not just the teachers, but the fellow students. Yeah, yeah, the. Um, in visiting artists, whoever they might be, the um, it, the hook is voyeurism. You know, uh, yeah, right. people want to n- know that they're not alone. So here's someone writing uh, very honestly and sincerely. So <clears throat> there's a there's a I think there's a, a big draw to that for all people to get sucked in. You know, if you see somebody's diary sitting there, yeah, you read a page and then before not long you've read thirty pages. So and you took you took a pause to that and, and kind of noticed that like oh people are, I well paying I, attention to this differently. I I noticed they were. I didn't take it seriously okay. until when I, until I moved to New York. Yeah, and then had the problem of, you know, in my Lower East Side studio. And well, I moved to New York City in 1986, and I got a studio on Stanton and Ludlow. Mm-hmm. I mean Ludlow Street, where Stanton intersects, and um, I think there's a piano store there now. Uh, I was on the top floor of that building. And um, I, it was a smaller studio, so I had to scale down those giant sculptures. And then, you know, that just started an evolution that wound up, you know, uh, in painting. Yeah. Um, you know, because the only way I could feel like I could just be that free again was to paint. Because once I just conceded that, okay, everything's going to happen inside this flat plane inside of a rectangle then I could just do what I wanted again. And, you know, when installation or when, you know, the physical limitations of making giant sculptures sort of become too impossible, painting is right there waiting to do it. And yeah. It was, it was like a skill I had. Why not use it? But um, I, I feel like we've jumped ahead a lot, but uh, that's all right. Um, you know, uh, anyway. Well, how did you come? So you came out of Yale feeling pretty solid in like what you're trying to get across or uh, how was this experience you said earlier that the experience overall was pretty good it was i think it was very good 
Have you met a lot of visiting artists? Uh, I mean, they always I have didn't. a great visiting artist I, program. I had a good friendship with Vito Acanci. Yeah. Um, he came up to the, see my graduate, my uh, MFA show on his own accord. Um, That's pretty cool. Yeah. I think he <laughs> liked the writing on the walls yeah, and yeah. he identified, he had already moved on in his work to architecture yeah. and site sculpture. And um, Yeah, but the core was in there. You know? I think he just saw like, this is, this is, this is a, a crazy young man. <laughs> right, right. And I like him. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I shouldn't say that. Maybe he didn't like me. I think he did, though. Um, so, in fact, we saw each other, oh, not that long ago in London. Mm-hmm. And uh, he remembered it so well. Yeah, we yeah. got to talk. Um, anyway, um, he, yeah, he, he was like a, one of those people you meet who is like a door opener, not mm-hmm. because he said anything or taught me. It's just what he symbolized with what he was and what he did. Like right. you said earlier, the Ramones. Yeah. You know, when you first hear the Ramones, it opens up a whole new way of making music and thinking about music. So, you know, w- when I first heard about the early works of Vito Conti in the 60s down here in Soho, uh, you know, it just opened up a whole new window of what was possible for me. You know, incidentally, my, my son, who's 15, in school now has an art history course, and uh, he's so enamored with learning about Vito Acconci. Oh, really? Yeah, he makes uh, one of Vito's images, his avatar, on a playlist on Spotify. Oh, that's really cool. I Wait, know. did he know the connection? No. He oh, no, weird. no idea. Isn't that funny? <laughs> yeah. So I, I actually don't tell my kids that much about my work because yeah. if I tell them anything, their eyes roll in the back of their heads. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can't get anything in there. Yeah. Except for, you know, go to school. You right, know, right. That's I'm allowed to say things like that, but that's even barely tolerated. But so I think some of those I think some of those things happen <laughs> genetically. They're passed on. You don't even have to say it, you know. Yeah. Like my son really loves Led Zeppelin. When he started playing guitar, he was playing Zeppelin songs and that's right. how I taught myself how to play. By right. listening to Zeppelin songs and just playing along. I never played it for or, you right. know, made him listen to it. Right. But and maybe some things just hit you know like certain things were you know genetically kind of like yeah you know connect with you or something that with flat feet and high cholesterol that's yeah too <laughs> male pattern baldness <laughs> <laughs> these are the important things i'm passing along right <laughs> damn um yeah well Zeppelin. bad spelling i guess you have bad spelling sorry i said that loud <laughs> so, so true i had to shout it <laughs> <laughs> so you had you had those people that kind of got you or I guess you connected with them later, right? Like someone like Vito Akanji. But I so well, let's go to the Lower East Side. You moved to the city. Yep. I'm sure it was a little less glamorous there as it was now. This has come up before with artists I've talked to. Yeah, it was. There was none of what we know Ludlow Street is. Yeah. Then. The um, the only restaurant was uh, the Elsinboro, mm-hmm. and that's where we always used to get our what we used to call crack margaritas. They were you know grain alcohol margaritas, Whoa. and they give yeah. them in a 16 ounce takeout cup so nice. we'd get two and go back to my studio and my i shared a studio with uh, peter boynton and maya lynn uh-huh. and uh downstairs from me was richard phillips mm-hmm. and jack risley and across the street was john curran mm-hmm. so and carl austin darp was around the corner on clinton street so, so those these were people you knew from school we all was moved maya, together was maya there when you were there yeah yeah maya was a uh good friend of all of ours and right. was she was uh you know part of our group of friends um and uh and also lisa yuskavich and matt yeah. faye levenstein also uh, moved a few years later into the east village 
So you had a you had a posse to bring into the Wild West. It was very important <laughs> to me to keep it together. Yeah. So I found the studio. I found it through uh, Judy Faff, who I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. She was in Holly Solomon Gallery, and um, in, in Holly's son Tommy Solomon was one of the original. Well, not the original. Josh Bear started White Columns, I believe, but Tommy ran it second, mm-hmm. and then Bill Arning after that, then Paul Ha, then I'm forgetting somebody. And then uh, Matthew Higgs, I'm, I know I'm forgetting somebody in there. But anyway, um, Tommy had his pulse on younger artists and things like that. And um, had his pulse on, I didn't say that the right way. Had his finger on the pulse. There you go. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> so um, and uh, so Judy knew, uh, knew this building that was opening up down there. I think Izar Patkin, uh, who was an artist who showed at Holly Solomon mm-hmm. had found this uh, building and he wanted to fill it just with artists. So I don't, you don't have to tell me what the rent was cause that's going to be depressing. <laughs> <laughs> Although I'm sure it was hard to afford yeah. at that point. Yeah, it was, uh, God, it was the whole, f- my whole floor, which was uh, bigger than this studio we're in now mm-hmm. was 900 a month. Mm. And I had rented half of it for four and four fifty. And, um, and what did you do to, to pay the rent? Um, I was in carp. I was a carpenter. Yeah. So um, for a while, I was in the carpenters' union. From a family connection, I got into uh, one of the local carpenters' unions. Yeah. And I was working in the World Trade Center, uh, hanging drop ceilings and sheet and repairing sheetrock walls and hanging doors and things like that. Did you learn that stuff growing up? Yeah. yeah. My father, uh, besides what he did for a living, he also would buy houses and renovate them. Mm-hmm. So after school. I didn't get to go home like all the happy kids. I would have to go to the job site and fill dumpsters. And um, I learned from his carpenters, yeah. you know, how to how to make walls and, you know, and, uh, and hang doors and things like that. Right. That's a good skill to have. It is. Yeah. I, I, I once I got out of the union, I was, was a little bit better fit for me. Um, and then I uh, would renovate kitchens and bathrooms with friends from undergrad and grad school Mm -hmm. and they were those were fun jobs you know we'd be in a job with you know john curran was the joint compound guy Mm -hmm. uh richard uh phillips and carl ossendarp would work um as painters Mm -hmm. and uh, i would usually be building the walls and hanging the sheetrock my brother kevin would be in on these jobs well you did go to sculpture school so yeah (laughs) we all knew how to do stuff right right and we but you know we were a whole crew that go around and renovate sometimes restaurants sometimes uh and we did a lot of work at terry winter's place in tribeca Mm -hmm. it was really kind and generous generous of him to hire a whole artist crew yeah because we were all such fuck-ups we (laughs) spent most of the time drawing characters of each other on on his unpainted sheetrock walls And it was so, it was really fun. It was, you know, you wanted to be in your studio, but it was, you know, if you had to work, this was a good situation to work. You could pay the bills, I imagine, right? Just barely. So yeah. the, the idea is you'd make enough money on a job so you could coast for a few weeks and mm-hmm. get back in the studio. And then when you'd run out, you'd start, you know, calling the, lo- the contractors again and trying to get an, another uh, two or three week engagement. Right. So it was on and off like that. And, um, you know, it, it, there, you know, anyway, there was, I'm, you know, through nostalgia, I'm thinking this was all fun at the time. I'm sure I was really upset about being broke all the time. Yeah, it was a grind. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. a total grind. Well, of course, you'd, you'd 
want to be in the studio all the time and not have to, yeah. you know. But yeah, in retrospect, at least you were able to like be around some some friends, and it was yeah. a, that there was a fun in that. Well, this was the basis for my character Chris Hampson, mm-hmm. who uh, I wrote this sort of fictional screenplay, and it was he was like an artist struggling to make it in New York City in 1990, you know, and he would do carpentry jobs and. And, you know, he was a complete fuck up. And the way that I created this character was not only what was true about me in this struggling time on the, on the outside trying to get in, but it was every embarrassing story from everyone I knew. Mm-hmm. I just amalgamated them into this one character. And I wrote it on yellow legal pad as it was in rough drafts with all the bad spelling mm-hmm. and taped them to the wall. And I had Chris's uh, fictional sculptures, you know, the, my fictional character's sculptures on pedestals in the middle of the gallery covered with plastic bags because he was too ashamed to <laughs> exhibit them. Right. So um, that's kind of the first show that really hit. Yeah. And um, But from that point on, you know how you were first introduced to the world? That's how people always remember yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. They, no one would believe that it wasn't just totally me. Right. They just thought they, no one could invent a character. Yeah, yeah. Like, It's like, well, I did. <laughs> and, but certainly there's the reason it it felt true is because there was so much of my truth in it right. but it wasn't it didn't exclude all the other fictional stuff i put in there yeah so it, that was again furthering what i learned on the walls at at grad school is learning that sort of way of mixing truth and fiction um to be able to you know create create something yeah yep. so how did you start you know to begin to show your work. Um, I mean, you made a lot of good connections and were sort of like plugged yeah. into a community, which was, I'm sure, yeah. helped. The, the direct connection was Judy Pfaff got us the studio. Mm-hmm. And I moved in and I convinced all my friends to move into this building in this area. So we had our tight unit down there. And this is what I told all my students is like move to New York together, stick together, yeah. be each other's first eyes. Even if somebody's too timid to be honest with you that your work sucks, their eyes won't lie. Mm-hmm. You'll see it in their eyes. And um, <clears throat> we all need to know to be kept on, you know, to kept moving in the right direction. So we had that. But uh, we also had this connection through Holly Solomon Gallery. Mm-hmm. Um, her son, Tommy, who was a frequent visitor. And, you know, he was really instrumental in all of our success. And, and, um, and in, in, in just by giving us advice, saying, you know, you're all not going to get absorbed in the art world at the same time. But he says he was very clear that he believed something was going on here and amongst us friends. And, you know, he at that time opened up a gallery in Los Angeles called Tommy Solomon's Garage. And a lot of us did shows there. Mm-hmm. I think I, I was one of his first shows that he ever did in that space. And um, what was the work you shipped out there? Um, they were plaster casts sunk in resin. Mm-hmm. And the way that, <laughs> I'm going to see if I can explain how that evolved so quickly. I went from making these giant animal pieces in New Haven to getting to New York to making uh, other kind of figurative like sculptures, but I'd, I'd paint polyester resin on them until mm-hmm. they got really, no, first I started painting beeswax on them until they got distorted. And then I thought, would it be really cool to paint something clear on them? So you could see the distortion and see the original thing in the center. So I started putting polyester resin on them. And then I thought, like, I want my literary influence back. So then I started casting my friends and say, who's your favorite literary character? So uh, 
I would uh, cast their head and title the piece them, and I'd submerge it in a big uh, cylinder of polyester resin. So there were these sort of things. So um, had you were working with that stuff? I in, was, yeah. In uh, the studio at home. Yeah, I were made, you living where you were working? I was, but yeah. I, I made an, a, a resin booth with an exhaust fan to the roof. Oh, nice. So uh, when I had it on, the, it was getting the, the fumes out. Yeah. I was, was living good. with uh, John Curran and my brother Kevin Landers at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if all of us die of liver cancer, it's my fault. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> your exhaust fan probably did the job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping it did. So you're sculpting John's painting. And you're, was your brother an artist? Is he yeah, an artist too? a photographer. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, yeah. wow. You covered all the bases. Yeah, we were all there. Photo, I, sculpture, and painting. Yeah. And I was writing too. Yeah. So... Um, so yeah, that was that was, but we jumped ahead because that's all the way after my studio burned down on Ludlow, and I and I moved across, the, I moved around the corner to Houston. But how did um, that happen? The uh, landlord wanted to collect insurance oh, on the building right, next right. door, so he burnt it down, um, and uh, we all lost our work. But for me, that was the end of the resin heads. Yeah, and it was a and right around that time too, I was in this relationship with somebody. Uh, for a long term and it, it broke up and I was in one of those moments where you're like ah oh, fuck it I'm not gonna, yeah. gonna do whatever the hell I want and then um, it doesn't matter anymore you know that kind of thing right. wild eyed in the rain at yeah. uh, so I I just launched into writing with a vengeance and um, that's where the Chris Hampson stuff came from mm-hmm. and all that happened at the time after this fire and uh, you know um and we, all, our whole community was going to split up. So, you know, uh, Richard and Jack Risley found a studio together in the East Village. So then I went to John across the street and said, John, would you like to be my roommate? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> so uh, it was too much. It, we, it was a big loft. Yeah. And it was too much for us to afford on our own. My brother Kevin was uh, graduating from Chicago Art Institute just that summer. So mm-hmm. I said, would you like to move to New York and live with me and John? And he's like, sure. Yeah. So uh, we did it, and we had a we had a, our own little unit there. And then our loft became the center for all of our friends to come visit and hang out. Yeah. And we had this great roof where you know after studio day we would go. It's um, it was this loft was um in the same building that this pl- performance place called Participant is mm-hmm. in now. Yeah, yeah. It's, it was the top floor. Right. So it was me, John, Kevin up there. And Rudy Stingle was on the second floor. Oh, really? Yeah. And um, and then we had this roof on the top that, you know, we had couches on and uh, AstroTurf. And we'd all just go up there and drink, you know, beer and have barbecued potato chips mm-hmm. every single night. And uh, That sounds pretty good. It was the coolest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and it, so we kept our, our sort of thing together where, yeah. you know, never make fun of each other's work but you sort of keep each other going the right direction just because you know like i say the honesty of a look sometimes can be more than a whole critique yeah is is at this point is john still doing more abstract work or is he starting into figuration he had started figuration still on ludlow street he started making uh, a couple of 
you know, really wacky portraits right. mixed in with a little bit of abstraction. And by the time we got to Houston Street, the abstraction wasn't totally gone, but pretty much gone. Yeah. And he had sort of started to do more portraits, and then the yearbook portraits started right then. Mm-hmm. He, he took a few uh, portraits out of my high school yearbook, some some out of his, and maybe some out of my brother Kevin's. Yeah. And uh, that was the fodder for that. And once and then he had a white column show on that work, and that and then everything started to grow from there for him. Yeah. Well, it's a. I, I guess it's a. There's a lot of people doing a lot of different things though from that co- small community that you were kind of tight with. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Because Carl's work is totally different. <laughs> Judy's work. I mean, there's so yeah. much going on there. Yeah, it was. It was. It was very fertile, and you know what. You know, you you never know whether like you know is this just my group of friends or, or are these guys really good? I mean, yeah. are they good because I like them? Or, I, yeah, or are they, it's they hard to know, right? Really good. Yeah. So, um, you know, or did we just make ourselves good, or did we convince people? You know, uh, I don't know the answer to that. But anyway, a lot of those people in that early scene, you know, are still yeah. you know practicing and have really great healthy careers right now. So. Right. Yeah, but it's it's funny how that always works. Like if you're friends in a band, yeah. you're like, oh, they're great. Yeah. And then you think, well, are they as good as I think, you know? Like, yeah. yeah. It's hard to tell. Like when you have a personal relationship, it, it totally changes the way you interpret. Like I went to Skowhegan with Dana Schutz and she was, oh, we yeah. would do studio visits and, and I love her work and she's such yeah. a great person yeah. and I can never see her work divorced from who she is personally, right. which is like the sweetest person ever. She is. So... Yeah, I, I often think like, oh, I wonder if I would have a different interpretation if I didn't know this person. I'm sure with John and Carl, like, you know, you can't really divorce that person from that work. No. And um, no. And, and seeing it develop with all these people, I saw them build themselves from the ground up as yeah. they saw me. And, you know, I just know how how true uh, um, to them that all of their work is. Right. And um, but, you know, I, I knew I knew John was. Uh, a, a rare talent uh and you know that's why i really i wanted him to uh, share a studio with him right i yeah. just thought this is a good dialogue for me to have and we ended up sharing studios for 12 years yeah. after that um before we finally uh went our separate ways the studio divorce all right we've been together long <laughs> enough it's time to get our own place <laughs> i i was just in his i hung out with him in a studio about a week and a half ago uh-huh. and uh we're still very tight friends. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, you go through the trenches like that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, anyway, so. Yeah. So how did you. We? So you started showing your work. I mean, you had the connection with White Columns and, and Solomon, you know. Yeah. I never showed at White Columns, but um, I, uh, Bill Arning took over after Tommy mm-hmm. and uh, Bill put me in a group show once. But um, I know I never had a white room or anything like that. So. But people, you were on people's radar, I guess, right? I yeah. Bill put me in a show in the Sculpture Center, and um, and he put me in a show in White Column. So he was really, I think, the first person to actually exhibit me. Mm-hmm. And then Tommy was after that, and then his mother Holly wanted to represent me, and um, and then around that time, Magda Sawan from Postmasters Gallery yeah. learned about me, and so did Colin Deland from American Fine mm-hmm. Art. And, um, well, he was on Broadway, right? No, he was, well, he had been, I'd first met Colin when he had his East Village Gallery. And okay. Magda did too. They were both um, right off of Avenue A. Yeah. 
and then they moved uh, for they both moved to Soho in Magda on Green Street and I think um, Colin on Lower Worcester if I remember correctly down near where the drawing center is yeah. now the Jeffrey Deitch area right, down there right. so um, they I had from nothing I had three offers to show mm-hmm. I had Magda Holly and Colin Colin was like the hottest gallery on the planet right. yeah so I very much wanted to show there but his style was in so much like yeah Sean we're gonna do a show but um the way I do it is just you just make your work and when I tell you you're ready for a show we'll do a show and and Holly was very professional like let's you know this is how it's gonna be right she, she had a stable full of old people so mm-hmm. older artists so I was gonna join as you know as a sort of a as a, the bigger galleries then would have like your younger tier right. sort of entrance and so I was being offered sort of that entry into that sort of established art world and then Magda offered something kind of in the middle so and she said your date for showing is November mm-hmm. can you make me a show by then yeah and I was just like do I wait around I don't think I should go with Holly because it seems like sun setting on that scene yeah as much as I respected her in in what Tommy had done for me which was so amazing and um, I just thought, and then I, I wanted to show with Colin, but Colin was like, I don't think my personality could have taken just waiting, mm-hmm. you know, for like, yeah. is it my, is, can I get in the game, coach? Are we going? Yeah, are we going? <laughs> Am I doing this? Or, yeah. <laughs> so that can really, be unsettling. I you know? really wanted to have something uh, concrete. So I started showing with Magda, mm-hmm. and I did one resin head show with her, and then. Um, that's right after that I broke up with this girl that I was talking about and, and then I thought fuck it I'm gonna just be really me here and yeah. I wrote the Chris Hampson stuff mm-hmm. and then did that first show and I went to Magda and I said I know I've already showed in this year but I think I've got something that we should show yeah. and she came over and she totally agreed so I did my second solo show in the same calendar year I think you know, my first one was in January and my second one was in November or December. Of that doesn't year. happen often. No, but <laughs> it was, there was an urgency of we need to get this into the world. Yeah. And all at that time I was making that body of work, John had started dating Andrea Rosen, who didn't have a gallery then. Yeah. So she was coming over to the studio, you know, for these after work, you know, sessions mm-hmm. to hang out with us. And she saw me write the whole Chris Hampson stuff. And she was, she and John my brother Kevin and Richard were all Phillips were all the first readers of all my first stuff. So Mm -hmm. they liked coming through because every day there'd be a few new vignettes taped to the wall Mm -hmm. and they all knew kind of what I was referring to. You know, it was like if whose, whose turn was it to be Chris Hampson basically, you know, whose horrible story (laughs) of trying to give their slides to Mary Boone or something like that, you know, morphing into this character. (laughs) Right. Right. So, and it was a great form of entertainment. It was also a great form for me to just exercise a lot of my angst about what I had tried to do with my life at this point. Is yeah. you know, move to New York City and become an artist. And um, so I was dumped it all in there, and uh, Magda showed it, and it was it was like a sort of a bomb went off in my life, a good bomb, mm-hmm. and I went from not being known at all to being known not only well in the in the United States but in Europe very quickly yeah in it you know i was i don't know 28 years old <clears throat> i think i i was a little immature for that amount of exposure but um 
It connected, though. It connected, yeah. And I think people really gave me a lot of latitude, and they gave me a lot of love for being an immature, you know, Mm -hmm. dumbass. They were, like, still probably liked that I was trying to, you know, spread the wings and and maybe expand what Vito had started, but in just a totally different way. You know, and, you know, Vito felt it was untenable for him to go on, and then maybe it is a a young artist's... uh, a baton to carry mm-hmm. is to be that sort of open, you know, nerve in the art world. And, um, you know, so anyway, that's kind of Was this around the time that I was talking about with you earlier about the magazine cover or was that later? That's later. That's uh, later. We're still in ninety ninety one. Okay. Yeah. So, but this is your first kind of like getting out there, really getting out there. A kaboom. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because the resident... How did you you navigate that? You know what I mean? Like all of a sudden, because it was probably pretty quick. You've known people who get sort of quick stardom in the art world and how they deal with it. They they sort of, you know, they they get a little full of themselves Mm -hmm. and they're they're carrying a weight they can't hold well or gracefully. Right. And, you know, they try to, you know, I would imagine there were those growing pains for me at the time. And, you know, you're, you're like... And then there's also the doubt, like... Are they all crazy? Like, right. I know I suck. How, how come they don't? Know? Yeah. And but you know, I would write that literally in the, <laughs> the stuff so much. <laughs> yeah, it's not like you're hiding that sentiment. Right. <laughs> it's kind of out there. Right. And I would do cartoons about people full of themselves. You know. Yeah. So what I started to notice in my work was this pattern of self-aggrandizing and self-effacing. Yeah. It was just up and down. You know, it's like I'm great. I suck. I'm great. I suck. So I started to pay attention to that pattern, and I gave them both characters, and that's where the monkey and the clown came from. Mm-hmm. The self-effacing was the clown, and the uh, self-aggrandizing was the chimp. And, um, and you know, because I've really jumped ahead to past 94 at this right, point. Right, right. But um, anyway, um, it, I think how I got there was, the, you know, so much writing on paper, sculpting crazy sculptures out of clay and showing them wet so they'd have to be spritzed during the show the idea was that you know they weren't good enough sculptures to be turned into bronze unless somebody really loved them and bought them and then they'd get turned into bronze Mm -hmm. which was an analogy for art itself you know the only art that survives time is art that people collect and then take care of over the centuries it's deemed worthy of deemed worthy of protection yeah, by, yeah. by future generations oh wow so that was actually the, the sort of conceptual yeah. idea behind those yeah it's just like you buy it it lives you don't and then did you did it happen where of people buy it and then you would bronze it yeah of course yeah lots and of it's kind of related to the old you know i don't know like i have a screen of a t-shirt and if enough people buy them i'll pull more prints or whatever it's <laughs> yeah. like a very uh utilitarian way of approaching like cre- you know production it was but it but i was more enamored with the conceptual yeah. part is love me i live right ignore me i die yeah yeah and, and because it's it's literally what the proposition that all artists bring to the world right you know yeah, not uh, you know it's akin to like all these shows now where they put on the pilots or like if you like it we'll make the show, you know, right. like you yeah. actually are seeing yeah. the kind of like pilots of these things, but right. it's as like, it's broadcast as like, we have this idea. Let's see if it takes off. You know? Yeah. Well, it's like, it's a reality show. And, and like, yeah. I think I was doing my, I brought reality to being an artist well before the reality show thing happened. Yeah. And oh, it, it's it, your fault. It is my fault. You know, who's, <laughs> and I had the idea about like inserting this sort of, real-time approval and stuff 
from this first reality show ever called American Family, mm-hmm. The Loud Family. Have you ever seen this? No. It's an incredible thing made in the 70s of a film crew follows this family around called the American Family. It's a family from Santa Barbara, California in the late 70s. And it just films their life. And it was being aired as they were filming it. So, for instance, the father mm-hmm. found his newfound fame went to his head, divorced his wife, got a new girlfriend, used his fame to sort of, you know, get out of the, the marriage and find a new person. All on camera. All on camera. And That's it, weird. It was the, the feedback loop of the reality TV just fucked this family up pretty yeah, hard. Yeah. You know, another, another, the oldest son came out as gay on TV, which was a huge thing for the 70s. Then he moved to New York, lived in the Chelsea Hotel. And they're filming this? Um, they did. Wow. And uh, he eventually was in a band with Bill Arning, and they used to play at uh, CBGB's oh, together. that's crazy. Crazy, right? So uh, I, I, I was watching this mesmerized. I think it was aired on PBS in 1990 or 89 or PBS, something. PBS, no less? Wow. Yeah. Well, was it a big thing or it was, was it kind re- of under the radar? They were replaying it because it was oh, on I originally see. when I was in high school. And I vaguely knew of it but didn't pay much attention to yeah. it. Um, and it was on in the 70s, I think mid to late 70s. And um, But I saw that and that's that informed my video making. That informed the way I write and behaved in my artwork as much as seeing early William Wegman videos, mm-hmm. seeing uh, experiencing... Uh, researching Vito Conchi's early works. What about like Warhol's, you know, test shots or a headshot? Certainly, yeah. yeah, yeah, part of it as well. Right. And there's um, a re- there's a real nakedness to those, you know. Yeah, it's it was really appealing. You know, I had all those uh, uh, John Morrissey. Is it John Morrissey? Paul Morrissey. Paul Morrissey. Paul Morrissey, yeah, Morrissey yeah. Um, movies. You yeah. know, and uh, a friend of mine gave me the whole set and. We used to just watch them, you know, they would always be playing in my studio. Um, but yeah, that, that, that open camera, just let it roll right. and, um, and just see what happens. And that reality is subject matter. And, um, and, and then the consequences of, of the artwork would, so it, it really happened. So things that happened to me in my real life and my professional life would become the content in right. the early work. And it started to grow on that. Yeah, it's funny because that real reality, like it sounds like that show, that's like a small window because once anything becomes exposed or like those reality shows are just feedback loop or they're affected by, you know, they're scripted or there's a a scripted element to it because of people's cognizance of seeing it before and being like, oh, this is the part where these two get into a fight or whatever. And it's not reality anymore. Right, right. You know what I mean? There's only, can only be a short window for actual reality television or something that's, you know, originally like real you right know? yeah yeah <laughs> because uh, everything's mediated and now instantaneously so what i mean now, now the content is the feedback loop in a way yeah it it, it it exactly it become it it produces content it produces product so um and you know, right up until this horrible presidency that, yeah you know it's like yeah it's a, it's a disaster it's it's surreal you know and uh well Anyway, <laughs> yikes. I, I hope it's, I didn't contribute to it, but, um, you know, I, it, it was in reality, it was part of my thinking back then. Yeah. I, I had, uh, you know, proposals out in the early days for 
if collectors would send me to like an island in remote Canada up in the Arctic Circle, mm -hmm. leave me there for a week with a video camera and a pad of paper, mm -hmm. everything I wrote about my fear about being there and my loneliness would be their artworks to keep. That's wild. But uh, no How many did you sell? None. <laughs> none. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. But even then, that became survival shows. Yeah, know, yeah. Which are like, you know, naked and afraid or whatever. Right. You know, like, uh, so, um, you know, I was really thinking along those lines. And, you know, my book, Sick, was just like, you know, what's it like to be an artist sitting in a room, you know, waiting for ideas to come, mm -hmm. you know, for a year. That's what I wanted to do. And I also thought, you know, a lot about the stream of consciousness, how it is our primary experience of life. Like uh, everything we do, everything we see, it's the scrim of the stream of, our, of consciousness. We see it through that. Yeah. It's the accompaniment to everything we do in life. So I thought, why is that not more content in art? And so, again, I was inserting it through giant unstretched paintings fill and extemporaneously just fill it with text mm -hmm. as small as I could you know my pain the my writing fingers could endure all painted with a brush you know um are you are you paying the price for that right now no <laughs> no your hands are good they're good no arthritis at nice. now I have to knock on some wood oh yeah there's some right here yeah, yeah <laughs> done <laughs> but it was flowing yeah you you just let it you let it out I let it rip and and it was never like the writing on those giant paintings was never like, hey, everybody read this. It wasn't, that wasn't the point. The point was that I moved through time yeah. as a thinking being on this surface for the amount of time it took to fill, to fill it. And I thought it was akin to just abstract expressionism, except for, you know, all the thoughts that de Kooning had or Pollock had are, you know, into the ether and the right. marks they made were on the canvas, but you can't read them per se. So I thought, oh, I'm going to move through a canvas, but you're going to know everything that the artist thought mm -hmm. while they're in front of it. So sometimes it's repeating the word beer 270 yeah. times. <laughs> it is what it is. But yeah, that's the giant elephant in the room that we haven't addressed is humor. Like yeah. humor is a giant part of that, of, yeah. of the work and of... I think you know, it's evident, though, in this interview so far. I mean, it's like I, I, it's how I interact with the world. Right. Always through humor. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, yeah, and I do as an artist too. So it's just generally in my character. Well, it's hard. To, it, humor is a very difficult thing to um, to infuse into artwork, and for it to be taken seriously. <laughs> I, I honestly can tell you, it takes value off. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it adds life value, doesn't it? <laughs> no, it takes monetary value. Yeah, right. It's like, well, I like this guy, but you know, it is a little jokey. Right, right. So like. As if uh, being funny in any medium is not as, you know, intelligent as anything I mean, else. comedy and tragedy? Yeah. I mean, Jesus, you yeah. know, like the, the foundation of creative arts I, <laughs> in the Western world is I basically, it's, it's one half of the equation. Comedy is just not seen as serious and uh, tragedy is really seen as quite serious. So I love comedy and I feel like, you know, comedian's ability to grapple with issues of the world is so successfully well often successfully you know tackled in in humor you know in Absolutely. relatability it's it's how you navigate an insane thing that we call life you know what i mean right. the, this yeah. this place that we're in and for those who try to take it so seriously that 
you know, well, it's a, it's a little jokey. Yeah. It's like, well, that's how people, I mean, everyone jokes. It's, it's how you kind of like understand life in a way. Yeah. Um, and you know, if, if there's any, you know, I, I take art seriously enough to devote my entire life to it and in virtually every breath I have to it. So I obviously take it seriously, but still, you know, um, I, I still find a lot of room for humor and it, it's, I couldn't do it any other way. It's just how I engage with the world. Yeah. Nothing beats a good gag, <laughs> a good bit. <laughs> I mean, do you think so? Whenever you're, you know, moving through that very honest but humorous at times, I try know, to be. Yeah. I mean, that's the equation. They're kind of like, you know, like this is kind of, you know, abject or just like crazy, or, but it's it's kind of funny, you it's, know. The humor is often my first go-to fig leaf. You yeah. Know, if, uh, so it's the icebreaker. Yeah. Which often in social situations that can be too, you know, I, I, who, who engages the world without it? I mean, and, and how many of those people you want to hang out with? Right. You know? It's like, come on. Oh yeah. Like if I'm hanging out in a new situation, going out to uh, like eat with people, I don't know, some social situation and someone cracks a joke. I'm like, okay, this guy's not an asshole. Like I can, right. I can talk to this Especially person. Especially a self-effacing joke. Right. Yeah. You know, it's just like, you it's need immediately to do it. disarming. You have to. Yeah. Just it, yeah, if you're just all serious all the time, it just sucks for everybody else. Yeah, it really takes the energy out of the room. So, well, <laughs> <laughs> for at least for me, I, and I, that's the way I feel art is. But it's also, you know, it's I, I try to make art that's extremely honest, and humor is a part of that. Yeah, it's a, humor is one of the best vehicles of honesty. Like Michelle Wolf, yeah, uh, the other night, the correspondence dinner, fantastic, nice. Do you feel like a lot of the people who are interested in your work, either collecting it, a fellow artist or whatever, I, of course, fellow artists probably more so, but, you know, are sort of engaged in that humor or like, yeah, I or think is it sometimes kind of like, well, I don't really get the funny side, but well, I like his paintings, you know. Well, we spoke of John mm -hmm. Curran and Carl Ostendorp both engage in humor yeah. quite regularly. I mean, the work is meant to be. Right. It's, it's good. And we, we grow out of the same dialogue as young people. You yeah, know, so like the art second city or something, <laughs> <laughs> the groundlings of, of the art yeah. world. And it's certainly my brother, Kevin, too, but uh, he hasn't had showing opportunities of late. But um, Although Maya doesn't strike me as being no, a funny person. No. She uh, seems pretty serious. Maya is very serious. However, in conversation, she enjoys right. humor. There you go. But, um, you know, she entered the art world in, in a, on a very serious note. Right. You know, the Vietnam War Memorial. So Yeah, that's not a gaggy way to break your no, way into the bed. No, and, and that's really who, who Maya is. She's, yeah. She is a very serious person. And it's person. important stuff she's, yeah. she's done and is I, doing, too. It, a huge respect for her. Yeah. Always have. Yeah, amazing work. Um, so that kind of brings us into, like, what you've been working on for the past however many years since then. Yeah, I mean, it's almost... A, How is it now? It's you more know? of... It's like a 30-year <laughs> exhibition history at this point. So um, it's it's more than 30 years when I think about it. Um, I don't know. It, it's um, I, I've just never stopped evolving. Yeah. And I always go honestly where I want to be. Um, you know, uh, and I usually have a couple of series that I'm, I'm, I'm moving through at the same time. Mm -hmm. Usually one is... Sunsetting, one's at high noon and one's sun rising. It usually kind of goes like that. It's maybe a way that I've sort of settled in in the last 10, 10 or so years. Or Now, uh, do you feel with, you know, being successful and being able to show your work all around the world and, you know, having a steady 
kind of, I'm sure you have a steady schedule. Like you're not, you know, you're not grinding to find the next gig or whatever where I'm going to be showing. I mean, how does the comfort level or the, you know, how does that affect your work? Or do you just feel like it frees you up to do what you want to do? And you're like, Fuck it, I can just do whatever I want, you know? I, it, it is freeing. Um, it's always felt free. And I've always worked with galleries who are, are very just tolerant of whatever I do because I do throw in a couple of Matt Ivans every now and then mm-hmm. that, that are, you know, are not sellable at the time where I exhibit them. But every single series has then sold within the next five years, mm-hmm. completely sold. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, some things are, are, you know, move right away and then some things don't. But galleries know this who work with me. Right. And they tolerate it. And that's just Sean being Sean. Yeah. Just <laughs> Sean. You're going to do what you do. Well, that's what you became kind of what people really value in your work is this sort of honesty and like, oh, I'm going to make a left turn right now. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll do a U-turn. You know, it's just. And I had, I did that on purpose. We can bring the Hogarth show, the colonial show yeah, back yeah. in right now because I had, uh, that happened in 1995 and there was a good five years of me being the the video guy, mm-hmm. the chimp and clown, the not even no, sorry, the writing, the the um, the um, the honest the honest writing, the you know that guy. Yeah. And and um, and and I could tell that there was a trajectory for that, and there was there was a lane that I could have just stayed in. Right. And and built that into just you know less stayed in that narrow lane and just but i was not satisfied to do it i felt like i it, it would not be a, a honest expression of who i was as an artist so i had to break it and Stuart regan who uh i was showing with out there in los angeles it was time for me to do my second show with him and he had told me sean i called my place regan projects because i want you to do something that you wouldn't do in New York. He said, out here in L.A., we basically have the same collectors as in New York, so think of this as your place to freely express. And I really took him to heart. Yeah, you're like, I can do that. So <laughs> I was like, you know, I've done an, I've filled up so many canvases with stream of conscious text mm-hmm. that I've started filling them up with stripes, you know, to, to sort of describe the absence of thought and yeah. what pleasure that would be. So multicolored stripes instead of text, yeah. S- the stripes of text. So um, I I, uh, I just uh, had this thing, you know, thinking about you know my town where I grew up, the colonial stuff, how I still sort of sort of uh, you know like to like to think of that era. I'm I am sort of like a colonial America nerd. I love mm-hmm. that topic. Love reading about it, thinking about it. Well, I mean, you slept on Old Glory. That's right. I did. <laughs> I'm sure it had an impact. I mean, I slept on Star Wars shoes. So I'm still like a huge Star Wars. Yeah, I know. I know your <laughs> those generation. Things, those things matter, you know? I met so many of your generation as a teacher. Yeah. And then, because I always tell my American flag sheets, people say, I love Star Wars. Yeah, Star Wars and E.T. Yeah. That was heavy stuff. Yeah, it's cool. So you, you embraced that. I did. And I just, I thought like, I saw, I was in London and I saw the Hogarths and the Rake's Progress yeah. and all the stuff. And I, I thought, like, this is a guy who was trying to use humor to tell the truth in his time. Mm-hmm. And he did it in his way. And those were funny paintings, they're fantastic paintings. So um, I wanted to do that, but tell the story of me and my time. Yeah. So I 
rather than write out the story, I wanted to do it through pictures like him. It was a way for me to get back into painting images again. And so I just did this madcap show of these American colonial tavern drunks having a a raucous time in a tavern. (laughs) The other thing is at at Yale in the British Art Center, there's a Hogarth painting called uh, Midnight Modern Conversation. Mm -hmm. Do you remember this painting? I I think I do. All of my vignettes come out of that painting. Uh But I just sort of reimagined them in a, in a colonial American right. setting. And it was loosely based on a time where I was uh, uh, asking, proposing to my own wife. So there's a proposal in the middle of it in the smaller paintings. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I, I told that, shipped the paintings out to L.A. And when I got there, they were opening the crates and... Stuart and Sean looked at them and they looked at me like, are you fucking crazy? Why couldn't you just give us text paintings, you idiot? Right, right. And then we just had this sort of shameful opening where I was just sort of, you know, staring at my feet. and then womp, womp. Yeah, Total loser. Yeah, yeah. Your career's over, buddy. I don't know. Yep. So. But it worked out. <laughs> People come around. There were lean times, though. There yeah, lean yeah. Lean times. So, um. I got all those paintings back, yeah, and 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 that was the last time I showed in that gallery, unfortunately. Um, but you know, and I I sort of felt like I lost a few other sort of famous galleries mm-hmm. from that shift as, as well. Yeah, but you had the the balls to do it, you know. I did. I broke it. I broke it on purpose. Yeah, I broke it wide open, and from that time and all the next body of works that I made, I put down enough roots to grow into everything I'm doing now. So the, um, and, you know, and it's wonderful to feel, to have built a career where freedom is, is the governing principle of yeah. it. You know, like I, I looked at some artists careers, you know, and I won't name anybody, but you feel, you feel the, the artist being trapped in their thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I just didn't want that for myself. And some people, that's their, they feel great in that. Like but, on yeah. Kawara, you know, no one's going to say, hey, we're thinking about a new direction for you. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like he's doing the dates every day. That's his deal. Yeah. And I'm sure, I mean, if you're doing that, that long and that, you know, it's it's just something that really yeah. resonates with you. There's something a meditative or. I love that body of work. He's, yeah. one, of, he's one of my art heroes. Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. It, that is an amazing accomplishment, you know, like, so I think it's, you know, you just had that need. You were the type of person that needed. And as like I mentioned before, like, you know, in school, when we saw that art for, I think it was art forum cover, right? With the yeah. words on. Yeah. I mean, that was to us, that was like this open window of like, oh, wow, you can do that. Like, what is this? You know? And so, you know, and in watching your work over the years, uh, there were shows that I've saw of yours where I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> this is a real, like, yeah, you know, 180. Like, it, what is going on? But then it's... There will be more of them. Yeah, you know, yeah. There's, <laughs> there's, you know, my Picasso show is one that, that flipped yeah. everybody out. But that show, you know, to this day, that's my most uh, expensive at auction body of work. Yeah, yeah. Not that that's a measurement of anything, but it just goes to show you that at the time it was just like, what the fuck, buddy? Right, right. It will like, take time. time. Yeah, I, yeah. And I lost my Berlin gallery over that show. They were yeah. like, that's it. I'm not showing you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you know, I lost two or three galleries over the Hogarth show. Oh, I lost, that's crazy. I lost a good gallery over the Picasso show. But anyway. Well, they don't deserve... I mean, if you don't have... I, I think when it comes to galleries and stuff like that, only certain people will really understand 
or, or care about your vision and like what you're planning or trying to do. And then there's some people who are like, just give me the stuff that sold over there. Yeah. Give me more of that. I understand. And it. those galleries are galleries are, are expensive enterprises. Yeah, they got to pay the rent. Yeah. And you have somebody who you who you think can make you money if they just do their signature thing. Right. And then they give you the Mad Ivan. Right. And then you're like, what? Why did you do that to me? Couldn't you have done it to your next show? Right. 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 So and you've saved that from your show in Singapore coming up in a couple <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not our space. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, but I think I'm, it's well known now by yeah. everyone who tolerates me. But no, it's impressive. I mean, and, you know, there's work of yours that I've been really into, like from when I was a student. And then there's work of yours that I was like, oh, that's, that's cool. And then yeah. there's other <laughs> stuff that I really love. You know, it's like it's when you change the way you're working, but it's, it's, there's so much admiration for all those different changes and all that stuff that you're doing. Yeah, I like it. Can't the, be easy. I like the picture, it, you know, it'll make by the end. And I, I, I just start thinking like, okay, what am I, what is, what is this thing that I'm creating after a lifetime of work? You mm-hmm. know, if I have over 30 years of work already made and probably have at least that to go, if I'm still painting into my late 80s, um, you know, that'll be a pretty interesting yeah. arc, arc of work. And, um, I mean, it all. To be honest, it already is. So, oh. and not that I'm Thanks. not saying stop. Hey, <laughs> can I can I just, retire? Yeah, just wrap it up. You know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, but it's it's already been an amazing amount of of really interesting changes in work. So, it's yeah. it's it's, it's got to feel good. And and in a way, honestly, isn't it in a way kind of a luxury that you've been able to make those changes? You know, I mean, it's a testament to how you know, to your work and how good you are at what you do. But it's also like to have, to have those opportunities to be able to make those changes and, you know, and to still be doing well, that, you know, it is, um, it, you can, from this conversation, it's evident what, what role good galleries play in this, Yeah, you know? Um, yeah. and I've had so many good galleries. I, you know, uh, you know, Andrea Rosen, fantastic gallerist mm-hmm. I'm so sorry that uh, she's closed her doors but um, what an amazing uh, person to just stick with me through all those twists and turns yeah. now now Friedrich yeah. Petzl is doing that you know Cornelia Grassi in London is one like uh, you know who's always has my back and she wants my craziest thing every mm-hmm. single time she's like don't give me the stuff that sells please yeah, it's gonna feel good it is it's that a safe place yeah you know like we I, she there are certain gallerists who want you to express the you know the you, you know the depth of your artistic ability yeah and um those are very good galleries and uh anyway yeah, and there's, there's, there's the other ones who are like, hey, give me some more Picassos for crying out loud. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, you, so you play guitar. Yeah. When did you start? Um, when I was six, I took lessons from a hippie in Palmer. And um, Would you play Dead? Or did you play... Uh, I know. I, my, he taught Can't me, Heat? No, tap, <laughs> tap Three Times on the Ceiling, If You Love Me. I think it was a... What is that? I don't know that. Tap Three Times on the Ceiling, If You Won't. Me, you know, I don't know that twice on the pipe. Who is that? Anyway, that was I remember trying to learn that like bing 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 bing. But this was my music teacher in grammar school. You know, she asked, "Does anyone here want to learn how to play guitar?" And I raised my hand. She goes, "Okay, my boyfriend's teaching this shitty apartment." And I'd go and knock on his door. I was six years old, and he'd come. 
he would I just woke him up. This guy yeah, yeah. like his V neck T shirt, oh, you know, pajama bottoms. Right. He's like, Okay, dude. Like Jack Black in School of Rock. Yeah. Just Put like, your finger right here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean on the neck of the guitar. Yeah, yeah. He didn't do anything. <laughs> oh yeah, crazy. Didn't, people didn't get that visual. <laughs> yeah. Put your finger here. Right. <laughs> I just did a little air guitar finger right, placement. Right. So um but yeah, he was a perfectly nice guy. But it was like it was sort of the wrong way for me to and so I, I let it go for a while, and it always bothered me that I didn't continue. Yeah. So maybe six or seven years ago, I just um, went on eBay and got a nice guitar and started playing it. And what kind uh, did you get? I got a Martin. Nice. Uh, oh, acoustic, yeah. Yeah, that's that one. Uh-huh. And then I've got a, a Fender over there and a little mini amp. Nice. When I want to, when I want to make those kind of noises. And I've got a classical upstairs because oh, that's nice. the only one I'm allowed to pay it, play upstairs. Oh yeah, that, that's the only the only sonic <laughs> yeah. guitar element that's allowed. Yeah. But now my son, I got my son a guitar. He's playing now every nice. night too. So. Yeah, my son's playing too. I they love it. Together. They should jam. Yep. <laughs> so, do you have anything coming up, or anything that you'd like to share with um, people listening of um, what they can see or? Uh, the next shows will be in Europe. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, my next gallery show will be in Brussels. Um, I'm looking forward to. I'm going to do this residency at Sev, the ceramic uh, place outside of Paris. They make oh, the Sev cool. porcelain, nice. so they're going to fabricate what you know sculptures of mine. So I'm going to go over there and sculpt. They're How long? Me know. I ha- I think I have the residency open for up to a year. So I might go this summer and start it off nice. and do a few trips over the year and then do next summer to finish it. So I and hope to have editions uh, of porcelain sculptures coming up, Sounds which is cool. nice because I need a sculpt, I need a sculpture reprieve. Yeah. Um, but um, I'm also I'm starting a new series. The stretchers are getting delivered, I think, tomorrow or, the, or Monday. And uh, I'm going to start a new series here as well in the studio. Sounds great. A new series. That's exactly what we need. I can't wait to see it. So I, like I said earlier, I'm a huge fan. I mean, you, your work was uh, monumental for a lot of us in school, and, and, and just you. kind of like it, it, it's really great to come over and meet you and talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Sound and Vision on Instagram at Sound and Vision Podcast. And you can find the podcast, more information and images I take from the podcasts at soundandvisionpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can make a donation of any amount on the webpage. The intro music and the introduction was lended by Michael Lovett of the band Nazca Lines. You can catch Michael moonlighting in the band Metronomy. The artist introduction music and outro music was provided by Lullatone. For more information about myself and my artwork, Check out my website, paintchanger.com, or find my work at Miles McHenry Gallery in New York City, Maho Kubota Gallery in Tokyo, Hezi Cohen Gallery in Tel Aviv, and Studio La Chita Gallery in Verona. Thank you for listening.